Chapter Thirty Four of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Thirty Four. Midnight was long past, and yet Olive sat at her desk. She had finished her note to Mrs. Gwynne, and was poring over a small packet of letters, carefully separated from the remainder of her correspondence. If she had been asked the reason of this, perhaps she would have made answer that they were unlike the rest, solemn in character and secret withal. She never looked at them but her expression changed. When she touched them she did it softly and tremulously, as one would touch a living, sacred thing. They were letters which at intervals during his various absences she had received from Harold Gwynne. Often had she read them over, so often that, many a time waking in the night, whole sentences came distinctly on her memory, vivid almost as a spoken voice, and yet scarcely a day passed that she did not read them over again. Perhaps this was from their tenor, for they were letters such as a man rarely writes to a woman, or even a friend to a friend. Let us judge, extracting portions from them at will. The first, dated months back, began thus. You will perhaps marvel, my dear Miss Rothsay, that I should write to you, when for some time we have met so rarely, and then apparently like ordinary acquaintance. Yet who should have a better right than we to call each other friends? And like a friend you acted, when you consented that there should be between us for a time this total silence on the subject which first bound us together by a tie which we can neither of us break if we would. Alas, sometimes I could almost curse the weakness which had given you, a woman, to hold my secret in your hands and yet so gently, so nobly have you held it that I could kneel and bless you. You see I can write earnestly, though I speak so coldly. I told you, after that day when we two were alone with death—the words are harsh, I know, but I have no smooth tongue—I told you that I desired entire silence for weeks, perhaps months. I must commune with my own heart and be still. I must wrestle with this darkness alone. You assented. You forced on me no long argumentative homilies. You preached to me solely with your life, the pure, beautiful life of a Christian woman. Sometimes I tried to read carefully the morality of Jesus, which I, and skeptics worse than I, must allow to be perfect of its kind, and it struck me how nearly you approached to that divine life which I had thought impossible to be realized. I have advanced thus far into my solemn seeking. I have learned to see the revelation, imputedly divine, clear and distinct from the mass of modern creeds with which it has been overladen. I have begun to read the book on which, as you truly say, every form of religion is founded. I try to read with my own eyes, putting aside all received interpretations, earnestly desiring to cast from my soul all long-gathered prejudices, and to bring it, naked and clear, to meet the souls of those who are said to have written by divine inspiration. The book is a marvellous book. The history of all ages can scarcely show its parallel. What diversity, yet what unity! The stream seems to flow through all ages, catching the lights and shadows of different periods and of various human minds. Yet it is one and the same stream, pure and shining as truth. Is it truth? Is it divine? I will confess candidly, that if the scheme of a world's history with reference to its Creator, as set forth in the Bible, were true, it would be a scheme in many things worthy of a divine benevolence, such as that in which you believe. 
but can I imagine infinity setting itself to work out such trivialities? What is even a world? A mere grain of dust in endless space. It cannot be. A god who could take interest in man, in such an atom as I, would be no god at all. What avails me to have risen unto more knowledge, more clearness in the sense of the divine, if it is to plunge me into such an abyss as this? Would I had never been awakened from my sleep, the dull stupor of materialism into which I was fast sinking. Then I might, in the end, have conquered even the last fear, that of something after death, and have perished like a soulless clod, satisfied that there was no hereafter. Now, if there should be, I whirl and whirl, I can find no rest. I would know for certain that I was mad, but it is not so. You answer, my kind friend, like a woman, like the sort of woman I believed in in my boyhood, when I longed for a sister, such a sister as you. It is very strange, even to myself, that I should write to anyone as freely as I do to you. I know that I could never speak thus. Therefore, when I return home, you must not marvel to find me just the same reserved being as ever, less to you, perhaps, than to most people, but still reserved. Yet never believe but that I thank you for all your goodness most deeply. You say that, like most women, you have little power of keen philosophical argument. Perhaps not, but there is in you a spiritual sense that may even transcend knowledge. I once heard, was it not you who said so, that the poet who reads God's secrets in the stars soars nearer him than the astronomer who calculates by figures and by line? As, even in the material universe, there are planets and systems which mock all human ken, so in the immaterial world there must be a boundary where all human reasoning fails, and we can trust to nothing but that inward inexplicable sense which we call faith. This seems to me the great argument which inclines us to receive that supernatural manifestation of the all-pervading spirit, which is termed revelation. And there we go back again to the relation between the finite, humanity, and the infinite, deity. One of my speculations you answer by an allegory. Does not the sun make instinct with life not only man, but the meanest insect, the lowest form of vegetable existence? He shines. His light at once revivifies a blade of grass and illumines a world. If thus it is with the created, may it not be also with the creator? There is something within me that answers to this reasoning. If I have power to conceive the existence of God, to look up from my nothingness unto his great height, to desire nearer insight into his being, there must be in my soul something not unworthy of him, something that, partaking his divinity, instinctively turns to the source whence it was derived. Shall I, suffering myself to be guided by this power, seek less to doubt than to believe? I remember my first mathematical tutor once said to me, if you would know anything, begin by doubting everything. I did begin, but I have never yet found an end. I will take your advice, my dear friend, advice given so humbly, so womanly. Yet I think you deal with me wisely. I am a man who never could be preached or argued into belief. I must find out the truth for myself. And so, according to your counsel, I will again carefully study the Bible, and especially the life of Jesus of Nazareth, which you believe the clearest revelation which God has allowed of himself to earth. Finding any contradictions or obscurities, I will remember, as you say, that Scripture was not, and does not pretend to be, 
written visibly and actually by the finger of God, but by his inspiration conveyed through many human minds, and of course always bearing to a certain extent the impress of the mind through which it passes. Therefore, while the letter is sometimes apparently contradictory, the spirit is invariably one and the same. I am to look to that first. Above all I am to look to the only earthly manifestation of divine perfection, Jesus Christ, the Saviour of all men? I will. You see how my mind echoes your words, my friend. I am becoming, I think, more like you. All human affections are growing closer and dearer unto me. I can look at my good and pious mother without feeling, as I did at times, that she is either a self-deceiver or deceived. I do not now shrink from my little daughter, nor think with horror that she owes to me that being which may lead her one day to curse God and die. Still I cannot rest at Harbury. All things there torture me. As for resuming my duties as a minister, that seems all but impossible. What an accursed hypocrite I have been! If this search after truth should end in a belief anything like that of the Church of England, I shall marvel that heaven's lightning has not struck me dead. You speak hopefully of the time when we shall hold one faith, and both give thanks unto the merciful God who has lightened my darkness. I cannot say this yet, but the time may come. And if it does, what shall I owe to you, who by your outward life first revived my faith in humanity, by your inward life my faith in God? You have solved to me many of those enigmas of providence, which in my blindness I thought impugned eternal justice. Now I see that love, human and divine, is sufficient to itself, and that he who loves God is one with God. There may be a hundred varying forms of doctrine, but this one truth is above all and the root of all. I hold to it, and I believe it will save my soul. If ever I lift up a prayer worthy to reach the ear of God, it is that he may bless you, my friend and comforter. And here, reader, for a moment we pause. Following whither our object led, we have gone far beyond the bounds usually prescribed to a book like this. After perusing the present chapter, you may turn to the title page, and reading thereon, Olive, a novel, may exclaim, most incongruous, most strange. Nay, some may even accuse us of irreverence in thus bringing into a fictitious story those subjects which are acknowledged as most vital to every human soul, but yet which most people are content, save at set times and places, tacitly to ignore. There are those who sincerely believe that in such works as this it is profanity even to name the holy name. Yet what is a novel, or rather what is it that a novel ought to be? The attempt of one earnest mind to show unto many what humanity is, ay, and more, what humanity might become, to depict what is true in essence through imaginary forms, to teach, counsel, and warn, by means of the silent transcript of human life. Human life without God! Who will dare to tell us we should paint that? Authors who feel the solemnity of their calling cannot suppress the truth that is within them. Having put their hands to the plough, they may not turn aside nor look either to the right or the left. They must go straight on as the inward voice impels, and he who seeth their hearts will guide them aright. End of chapter 34